Hi, and welcome to Sacred Science, Leaning Wisdom from Science and Religion. I'm Rabbi Jeff Middleman, founding director of Sinai and Synapses. We believe that the biggest questions we face in this world aren't religious, and they aren't scientific. They're human. So our mission is to explore some of the biggest and most important questions we face, and to talk in depth with some of the brightest and most insightful thinkers on topics ranging from the origins of the universe, to political psychology, to the way in which technology is changing who we are. You can find all of these episodes and guests and much more at sinaiandsynapses.org. And if you'd like to join us live for these conversations, you can go to jewishlive.org slash sacred science for an updated slate of guests. We hope you find these conversations enlightening, thought-provoking, and most of all, inspiring, as you get to hear an incredible diversity of thought and expertise to glean wisdom from both religion and science. Hi, and welcome to episode three of Sacred Science, Gleaning Wisdom from Science and Religion. Thanks for joining us for this conversation today. I'm Rabbi Jeff Middleman, founding director of Sinai and Synapses, which bridges the worlds of religion and science. We're all experts in our own fields, but trying to translate that expertise to the wider world is a whole different challenge. Rabbi Rachel Jackson had been a biochemist before entering the rabbinate, and she had to translate her findings to the other team members. And she's now a rabbi surrounded by 250 churches, needing to translate her teachings to an audience that's not always familiar with Jewish traditions. So how do we speak more clearly to others? And even more importantly, learn how to listen to those we may not understand otherwise. These were a few of the topics that we discussed with her. Rabbi Jackson was also part of the Sinai and Synapses Fellowship from 2017 to 2019, and she's also the co-host of a podcast called Down the Wormhole. Rabbi Rachel Jackson is the rabbi of Agudas Israel Congregation in Hendersonville, North Carolina, and was ordained from the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion. Prior to rabbinical school, she worked for a decade as an analytical chemist in the biopharmaceutical, biofuel, and hazardous waste companies. This conversation was recorded on December 24th, 2020. Rachel, thank you for taking some time here this afternoon. Thank you, Jeff. I am really thrilled to be here um, talking about, well, all of this stuff just really excites me and is thrilling. I, as you said, I am a currently a rabbi in Hendersonville, North Carolina, which is not on the side of the water, but much closer to the mountains and far away from people, generally speaking. Um, so we're on the other side of the state than what most people think about when they think about North Carolina. And as you said, I I actually got my bachelor's degree as a chemist. And for those of you that can't quite see, and I know I've got my microphone on the way, so I'm actually like dressed also really loving science today. And that was intentional. So I'm just going to jump off on that for two seconds. So my title says rabbi, and I earned that degree and I live that degree and I love it. I also think that with that title, I have the ability to share my other loves and share my other passions in the world. And one very subtle way that I can do that is by the earrings I wear or by the dress I wear, or since this is COVID, 
the masks that I wear. So today I have my galaxy mask, um, which I think is just a lot of fun. It's like a nebula. Um, So for me, I didn't leave chemistry. I just left the career of chemistry. I just wanted to add that. Yeah, I'm curious. I would love to hear a little bit about your experiences and your thoughts of Ways in which your work as a chemist, you know, as you said, for 10 years and what was one of the wonderful things that that you've said a couple of times is being able to have your fingers in a lot of pies when you were working there um, and how that connects with your with your work and as your your life as a rabbi. I think that's a, it's a really there are very few rabbis who have actual degrees in science. <laughs> yes, thank you. So you're right. I, I have not met too very many rabbis that have degrees and work experience um, as a scientist. And for me, I like I said, I don't leave that world behind. I just don't do it every day. So I want to share a little bit of the background, though. Um, so when I was a kid, I knew that I wanted to be a chemist. Like that, that's what I wanted. That's what I wanted to be when I grew up was a chemist. And so when I was in eighth grade, I had um, an in, they call it an internship, I think just to make us feel better, but with the local college, local university. And I fell even more in love with it. Um, and my first job out of school was out of um, university, that is was working with a blood bank and working as an analytical chemist. And I did that just for a little bit, but it allowed me to see the breadth that there is in the world of science. Um, From there, I actually moved into a biopharmaceuticals company, small molecules company called Array Biotech, and that was in Colorado. This gave me the opportunity to work with PhD organic synthetic chemists and biologists. And I was doing my analytical piece, which um, just just real quick, what is what does that actually mean from a bench chemistry standpoint? It really means that somebody, at least for what I was doing, somebody would go create something in the lab and they'd be like, wow, we did it. And then they'd give it to me and I'd be like, no, you did it. Try again. <laughs> Here's how you need to go about it. Here's right. Um, and I was like, please don't shoot the messenger. That is not, that's not okay. Um, so really learning how to actually work with people in communicating what they were trying to create mm. and where it could need a little bit of finagling. But I also worked in biohazardous companies and a biofuel company, Hmm. right? Trying to make jet engine fuel from corn and yeast and anything that wasn't, you know, extinct dinosaurs. Um, But the biggest thing that I learned from that too, that I use to this day is the ability to communicate with somebody who doesn't know your jargon Mm -hmm. because it doesn't matter what you're saying if the other person doesn't know the words that you're using. Um, So for me, that translated so easily into what I'm doing now um, so that we can talk all we want about a vaccine and mRNA. But if you have no idea what mRNA is, then that word means nothing. So it's really our job um, as the communicator, as the cheerleader, as the leader 
of these things to really be able to communicate. And, you know, I, I remember at, at HUC, they taught us that the only reason we have any right to speak in any kind of way with any area of expertise is because of our degree, because we, we have a rabbinic ordination. That's the only reason that you have a right to call yourself a rabbi. But the only reason anybody's going to listen to you is if you're able to build relationships, that's number one, and to be able to communicate it clearly, right? Anyone can say whatever they want, but if it's not being heard, it's totally useless. Beautiful, beautiful. And I think one of... Um one of the other teachers that I heard also say is, and, and and other teachers have said this in all different places, it's not what's taught, it's what's caught. Mm-hmm. But the onus is also on the teacher, right? You have to be able to throw something that's being able to be caught. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'd love that your first point was to build relationships, right? That the, That is the question of, where does our authority come from? And that doesn't matter if you're a chemist or a scientist or if you're a rabbi. Who is giving you authority really matters because that's what will allow you to communicate effectively and with an audience. Otherwise, you're kind of just talking to a wall. And I think that's that's something that's coming up a lot, for example, in COVID and, and seeing this. There was a, a very interesting article in, in the New York Times of, of saying that we're trust the science, trust the science, trust the science. But there's also ethicists that need to be part of these conversations. There need to be religious leaders. The questions of, of school closing, and this happened in, in New York City and in, in Brookline, Massachusetts, there was a big article in Slate about this just the other day, which is that Sometimes it's it's a little bit of a crutch to be able to say trust the science when in fact there need to be people who are experts on a variety of different ways. So I'm not going to trust my Facebook feed to understand what's going on for for COVID, but I do need to be able to trust and to be able to know that I can trust my politicians to be able to be making these kinds of decisions. I need to be able to trust the other stakeholders to be having the the appropriate expertise and to say this is something that I'm not an expert in. I don't want to be overstepping my bounds in this kind of way. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's that's a that's a it's an interesting piece. I'm wondering if you're seeing that, you know, in in, in rural North Carolina, where there's a whole other kind of conversation that's happening there. Yes, <laughs> in a in a slow answer, I think I completely agree with what you've just said. We we need to trust the scientists, and and and. Right. And the ethicists and the politicians and the media and our doctors and the scientists. Right. Not just the science, because if we say, oh, trust the science, well, that means I have to understand and be in relationship with the science. But I'm mm-hmm. not, most people are not in relationship with the science. Right. But we can be in relationship with other people who we then trust who can find the expertise elsewhere. So for me, it's not just trust the science, it's trust the scientist mm-hmm. or trust the person who does trust the scientist. Um, that matters a whole lot, especially here in 2020, at the end of 2020, where we're seeing the degradation of trust in general, mm-hmm. where we're wondering, we have competing forces, competing trusts, where um, there might be a particular politician that has garnered trust among their people, which is in direct opposition to a scientist who has garnered 
um, a following among his his or her people. So, and then you're then you're stuck with, well, which of these? And excuse me, uh, whom do I trust? And and that goes down to the relationship and the expertise. Right. I I am a uh, reform ordained rabbi, and I am a chemist by training. I'm not a biologist. I am not a doctor. Please don't ask me to look at the growth on your arm. That is really so far outside of anything that I have ever learned, except to say, if you're worried about it, go talk to your doctor. So you trust me enough. I have at least made the relationship enough that there that's built in the trust. And then I have to know myself to know what my expertises are. Um, and know who I can direct a person to. And I think that level of humility, frankly, of knowing what one's bounds are is so crucial. And we're seeing that blur because there's a big difference in enjoying something, a big difference in following it, either from a scholarly perspective or from a Facebook feed perspective, that is conflated with expertise. Mm -hmm. And so what we see here in um, the rural part of our state is that the person who is the expert is not the same person as the authority. Mm. And the person who is the authority is the person who is, um, and I, I don't want to use this term, but I'm going to, who's winning out because they're not actually winning. We're all, in fact, losing when an uh, when an authority is not an expert mm-hmm. um, in whatever they're whatever they're talking about. Um, so I don't know if that that helps, but yeah, it's, there's it's a huge it's a huge issue here. Um, I mean, we have from day one. So we we joke in in Hendersonville. So none of you have seen us on a map. Just going to throw that one out there. <laughs> you might have seen our neighbor to the north, Asheville, but you haven't seen us. Uh, our town is 14,000 people. Um, our entire county is 100,000. And our, our town has over 250 churches. And us. <laughs> one one <laughs> synagogue. That's right. We represent. Um, and the, the number of marquees that I drive when I drive down the street, it's like, you know, we will come inside and you can't stop us. And all these quotes from the Christian Bible of saying you can't stop us from coming inside is is my backyard. So I'm mm-hmm. I'm living that reality. And and you know, you've mentioned a couple of times in, in our in our friendship over the last few years and through the fellowship of being the only rabbi surrounded by 250 churches and that, and that you're often brought in or you had been brought in physically pre-COVID times, but you were seen as the, as the, as the Jewish expert in a lot of ways. And, and how is that, how does that sit? All right. That's, that's gotta be a challenging place where there are misconceptions about Judaism, particularly in, in the Christian world, in rural areas where there's cultural elements. There are some gender pieces, I'm sure, that, that come into that. Be really curious to hear what, what have you seen as something that's been very effective and, and what have been some of the challenges that you've been facing in that? Excellent question. I think the very, the easiest way to answer that is I knew what I was getting into. Frankly, I I knew that I was coming to an area where I'd be the only rabbi in the county, um, and and for many other counties, um, 
And I knew that that this was not just the Bible Belt, but the belt buckle of the Bible Belt. Um, and so I, I think going in with eyes wide open was part of that. And recognizing that my goal, my rabbinate, was not just to be a, a rabbi to the Jews, but was to be a rabbi to non-Jews, which meant helping dispel with no judgment any preconceived notions without going in and saying, how dare you not know this about us? Don't you know we're 2% of the population in America? And it's like, you might be 2% of the population in America, but that's all of America. And that includes New York and California and Florida. Suddenly you get rid of those and, you know, we're less than half a percent. Um, So, so recognizing that, that people do want to learn, recognizing that um, we can overcome ignorance that we can overcome stereotypes, we can overcome those things. However, I also realized that I'm unwilling to to talk to a brick wall. And what I mean by that is if someone doesn't accept me as clergy because I'm Jewish or because I'm a woman, then that's a non-starter. I have to be accepted for who and what I am because we can't have a conversation if someone can't talk to me. So I've had conversations with people um, in the area, clergy or their parishioners, who've said, well, why are you talking? I said, well, because it's, you know, it's my turn. Um, right. <laughs> it's, it's literally my turn to talk. I was invited. It's my turn now. That's right. <laughs> Uh, because I was asked, um, well, but we don't, we don't allow for women clergy. I said, well, that's, that's, and I'm here to show you that there are places that do allow for women clergy. Mm-hmm. And so can we have the, no. So, okay, well, thank you for your time. Right. And, and it's just a non-starter. So I think that that's part of the conversation is recognizing that if you're attempting, if we put people on a spectrum and I'm on one side of a spectrum and someone else is on the opposite side, I'm not really going to have an effective conversation where we will meet is in the middle. And so bringing in allies who male, moderate allies and talking to them saying, ah, this is my slow road in. Mm -hmm. This is how we can change is using uh, for better or for worse. That's the situation. So if I want to affect any change, I have to understand the entirety of the uh, of my community. So I think that that's one way. And the other part is I'm just open. You want to come in? Come into the synagogue. You want me to come to you? I'll come to you. I put dreidels in the hands. Well, I didn't do it. Um, <laughs> I gave a dreidel to every kid in my son's elementary school, like the entirety of the school, mm-hmm. so that they could at least have something to ask a question about. Mm-hmm. So I think that that piece is really important. Just being open. And, and you know, and a phrase that 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 I'm thinking about is this idea of called the adjacent possible, right? You can't you can't change if, if you're here, you can't get there, but you can get there step by step by step by step, but it's a slow road, but you can impact you know, as you said having somebody who's who's ne- who's who's somewhat next to where you are, who then may be someone next to where you are, who may be someone next to where you are. And that's where some of those conversations and relationships can can build. Excellent. Excellent. And I, I just want to add one piece. When I get frustrated with the adjacent possible and going, I just, 
just why, like, why not now? Like, why do I have to go through this slow way? Um, and, and that is where I bring in a bit of Judaism, right? And I bring in a bit of that foundation of saying, well, we're a really old culture and we've seen a lot of stuff and written down a lot of things. And one of the small things that we've written down, and I'm sorry, I don't have the quotation. I can always find it. Um, but it's this idea of the Messiah comes slowly, right. slowly. <laughs> like the Messiah is not coming anytime quick. And there's this the, this paragraph that basically says, um, if you're planting a tree and the Messiah comes, first finish planting the tree and then greet the Messiah. <laughs> and and it's and it's almost the, this question, and I, I'm seeing this with questions of of public health. I see this questions in religious conversations. I see these in political conversations, which is almost the, the dynamic or the tension between being, being right versus being effective. And so many of us are much more interested in being right and, and being able to talk to the people that we agree with and saying, how could they possibly believing X or Y or Z um, as opposed to saying what's going to be an effective inroad here, and um, and it's and it's and it's probably a very different, in some ways very similar, but in some ways it's a very different um, situation that you're in than, than people who may be on the coasts and and where there's a liberal enclave and 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 can all denigrate people on the other side versus where you you're there. Your friends of your friend, parents and friends and things along those lines that you want to you're going to see the grocery you go to the grocery store and on the PTA with and things like that. <laughs> no, absolutely, and I think there's it takes a particular skill set to both be in a homogenous group as well as being in a group of um, heterogeneity, right? That it it really does take um i think some strength and creativity and encouragement to be in a group that all thinks the same because let's be honest a group of people doesn't all think the same they just you just have to look a little bit closer at what divides them mm-hmm. to bring them together um and it's much more obvious when you're looking at your group and going oh wow that's that's a very different perspective mm-hmm. <laughs> and and still needing to bridge those those gaps but it it comes down to relationships. So it, it comes down to, and, and I, this is what I also learned as a chemist, the synthetic chemists, so that was their job. <laughs> it's not who they were there. They are <laughs> synthetic. <laughs> they were real human beings with they the were flesh real and people. blood. <laughs> right. They're real people, um, but they were creating things, right? They were synthesizing things. The ones who didn't try to make it my fault. The data that I presented to them were the ones that I had a relationship with, mm-hmm. were the ones that we would have lunch with or could joke around with or had some some common similarity. And so when it came to something that was hard, and by the way, when someone is telling you that the last six months of your work was for naught, that's a hard conversation. Um, it was much easier. I think the same thing is true regardless of what we're doing. Um, so the same thing is true for me in the um, congregational world, but also being the rabbi in the other places and saying, let me build these relationships. Um, so I frequently speak at a Unitarian Universalist congregation here in town. Um, I was speaking at a liberal Baptist 
congregation here in town. Um, I've spoken at as many interfaith panels as I can say yes to, so that there's at least a faith, a face to diversity, that there's a face to um, that we're not all the same and that, that it's an approachable face, face, frankly, right? That it, that it's, um, I don't mean literally my face. <laughs> right, right. But somebody that, that's, that you can get to know. And that's, I think, and, and this idea of, 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 as you, as you described your work of being an, uh, an analytic chemist of telling someone they're wrong, that's actually, that's a really, that's a really hard thing for people to be able to hear. Um, and, and I think that, Whatever it is that somebody is creating, it may work and it may not, but they're often very invested in that creation and they link that creation with their with their um, identity. And that happens scientific theories. They say like i'm I'm tied down to these particular theories um and and seeing this with with different things of social theories of what's what's actually going to be an accurate way to be able to create more diversity and equity and inclusion, right? There's lots of different ways to be able to say that and saying to somebody, no, you're doing it wrong to do it this kind of way is very threatening. And so you know how do you how do you say, I'm sorry, this is what you're presenting. The data is saying something different than what your theory was, what your what your proposed ideas were. Yeah, exactly. And and uh, learning that skill set, I think, is important for all of us. And I think it's applicable to all of us. Every one of us has been in a relationship with somebody, uh, spouse, sibling, best friend, child, right? And the approach of you're doing it wrong really just doesn't work. <laughs> for any any kind of relationship but i also uh, the quote that you just said uh, efficacy versus right um i use a slightly different i use slightly different version of that not just efficacy but asking oneself the question would i rather be right or would i rather be kind there are so many places in our world where it just doesn't matter that the the absolute rightness is inconsequential to the conversation, is inconsequential to decision-making, it's inconsequential to so many things. So the question of, do I want to be kind right now, Mm -hmm. I think is really crucial. Um, And that's something that we can learn from all fields, that, that we can learn from and apply. Now, generally speaking, science isn't all about the emotions, right? It's not all about the touchy-feely. Um, but until the synthetic chemists are actually synthetic themselves, they're made up of people. And so we need to be kind to one another. So when a non-scientist, and um, if I if I may, can I have a parenthetical aside here? Sure, absolutely. I heard a phrase years ago that basically said it's a shame that music and art have become professions because everyone's got that in them i think the same can hold true for science for tourist study for talmud for talking religion it's i mean it's a good thing that we now have experts in these areas but it's not to say that the rest of us can't really enjoy those things. I love being a backyard astronomer. I think it's fascinating. 
I couldn't point out half the constellations. I, and even then probably less than that, but knowing that there's the, the convergence of Saturn and Jupiter, right. This time of year, and it's really close and you can look in your telescope and see rings and moons. And that's fun for me. And I think that's what we need too for everybody in science and in Judaism, just to say, it doesn't have to be your life's work to enjoy it. Well, that, you know, that, that leads to a conversation that I'd love to unpack because both of us have relatively young children, sort of elementary yes. age children. <laughs> and, yeah. and both of us love science and say the universe is 13.8 billion years old and humans evolved by natural selection and climate change is real and all these different things that are, I don't want to say the word believe because it's not the right, right like it's, it's, I think the better Understood. word is accept. The word, or did they? Understood. Understood. And, and, and I would say are accepted. These are the accepted understandings of this. Um, and at the same time, teach the Torah portion. Um, understand the, the values in, in these kinds of ways. And, you know, as we're talking of, of different Torah portions of when I was, my son's Sadaka box is Noah's Ark and is asked questions about Noah's Ark and how do we teach about Noah's Ark? And I don't want to say, well, it was all a bunch of made up stories because that's, that then denigrates what his connection to the Torah is going to be. And I also don't want to say, well, God was so angry that God decided to destroy the world 4,000 years ago, because that's not scientific. That's not an accurate way of understanding this. I'd love to hear how how you think about these kinds of questions, particularly with with young children. And you know, you're talking with your with your uh, with your son's kindergarten class. And you know, how do you think about this interplay as a parent and as a rabbi and as a scientist? Excellent. Well, sometimes it keeps me up at night, um, right? Trying to think about this. Here too, I'll sort of rely on the relationship and the communication, right? It's our job to communicate. I'm the adult. I'm the one that theoretically knows things. Um, I say theoretically because there's so many things I don't know, but according to my six-year-old, I know everything. Um, and I actually dispel him of that quite frequently. Um, I don't want him to believe that I know everything because he can learn it. So I actually go to a place of emotions, and I know that science, I said that science sort of takes us out of that, but I rely on the emotions of, well, how does this make you feel? When we read our dinosaur book and we talk about which is our favorite herbivore and, you know, he, which is your favorite carnivore and, and talking about the lifestyles and how they used to live and what was the, um, what was the atmosphere like way back when there were dinosaurs and how that's changed. Um, that elicits a feeling that elicits a feeling of awe, of respect, of curiosity, of, Lots of different things, lots of different feelings, lots of different desires. Um, and here too, I'll say I'm not an expert in feelings. I might be categorizing some of these things wrong as feelings, but it's something that I don't think about. It's something that affects me, right? That's what curiosity is. It's I don't think about it. I just do it. Um, so what is the feeling that that comes of that? I use the same questions when we talk about Torah. So when we read Noah's Ark, what kind of feeling happens there. Um, and how, how do we understand this? Let's figure out what are they trying to tell us? What is the question that we're trying to answer, right? 
I move from the reading comprehension, what is this story, straight into the personal, how does this story make me feel, and then also uh, analysis, what is this trying to teach me, what, is it, what am I trying to learn, that way I don't, I don't have to ask, ask or answer the question of, is this a myth, is this just folklore, is this um, false, is there creating some um, some tension which didn't exist. Why should I be the one to put that tension in there to say, oh, well, I don't believe it existed. You know, I don't believe that the world was wiped out back then, which I don't believe that, but I'm then adding that tension. So if I just, if we don't, if we talk about it in ways that don't bring in the tension, I think we're able to hold both equally. And, and yeah, so one of those questions of, of, don't not answering more than what is being asked. That's you know what people say particularly about sex with young kids, right? Like you want to you want to give like, whoa, what what's prompting you to ask that question? Right. Like that's the and 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 leading it in so that it so that it's not adding additional challenges and tension that 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 are almost always present for adults, but not always present for children. Yeah, exactly. And and really addressing with children especially, but I think for adults too, getting to the heart of the question that they're seeking, not necessarily the question they're asking. And those are different those are different pieces. Someone might be saying, I'm really I'm if a person is lashing out because and they're mean, are they just a mean person or is there probably some hurt that's happening and can we address the hurt, right? And again, I think that's true for adults as well as children. Adults just don't usually use their bodies the same way that five and six-year-olds, right? right? If they get angry, they just, ah, they hit you or something. And you're like, okay, I see we need to calm down, address the, address the moment. Okay, we need to calm down about this and then address what was making you sad. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think... We can do the same thing when we look at when we look at science. And right now, when we're talking science, the only thing on so many of our minds is COVID. What is making you anxious about this? Oh, are you anxious about getting a shot? Are you anxious about being one of the first people to get a shot, the vaccine? Are you anxious about the side effects that are going to happen? Are what are you what are you anxious about? Not who do you believe and why do you believe them, but let's figure out what's actually mm-hmm. the challenge here so that we can get to a point where we're all comfortable. And um, that is also another place where I see my role sitting in both the worlds of understanding science and being a rabbi is to bridge that, how are you feeling about this? And also to be an authority of someone saying, I trust the scientists, <laughs> go right. get your vaccine. <laughs> Well, and, and it's and it's almost the dynamic between in Torah study of the pshat and the drosh of exactly. what does the text say, and then what's the interpretation, and you can play off the interpretation, and and you can't say, all right, the Torah takes place in in the south island of New Zealand, right? You can't like that's not in the text. You can't make that up. The text says, and there are things in and 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 on the other side too, there are things in the text that are challenging and problematic. And I think it's it's not healthy to sort of like, oh well that was that was then three thousand years ago and we're much better now. Um 
by being able to say, well, wait a second, what's, what's the, what's the problem? What's the driving force of this text? Why was it, why was it written? And, and it's both, you know, and both of, of what's the expert and what's, what's being heard. And there's, and they're not always the same thing, but there's that interplay of, in science too, what's the data and what does the data mean? And that's not, and it's not always so clear to be able to see those different pieces. No, I think I, I'm, I'm chuckling because that's exactly the challenge with both science and Torah. And in this context, I'm using Torah as, you know, the broad Torah, not just the five books. Um, it's, it's not what the words are. It's not what the numbers are. It's not what I was trying to get out of it. It's the, okay, how can I interpret the information I have at hand? And you mentioned Pshat and Drash. I actually like the entirety of that concept. And some of us might be familiar. Um, so let me just explain this term real briefly, the pardes. This pardes, the word itself means orchard, um, but it goes through four different categories. The summary, which is Pshat, right? reading comprehension. Remez, which is... What is it trying to say, um, right, that that almost between the lines, but it's still rooted in the text. Um, drash is an interpretation. And then Sod, which is what is the hiddenness that is for you? It's your mystery. It's your personal attachment to this thing that has possibly no basis in reality. And that's okay. So really looking at all of that, and that's what science needs to do because we turn it and turn it and turn it over. We are not stuck in the same place in any scientific field than we were 50 years ago, 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, but appreciating where they were at the time and then looking at where we are now. And, and, that, and that any text or any piece of scientific data and, and any scientific theory, any scientific idea creates more evidence so I, the islands of islands of ignorance, or, or the sea, a sea of ignorance, islands of knowledge, and a sea of ignorance, and and it's and we keep finding out more. Like, oh, here's an island of knowledge, but then surrounded by even more ignorance, that then leads out to more kinds of questions, and that happens too with 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 Torah and building on that of of Talmud and Rashi and the and the Tosafists and modern commentary, and it builds and builds and builds and builds and builds, and, builds and it doesn't reject or ignore what what's at the root, but it, it, but it becomes a starting point and not an ending point. Excellent. Yeah. And I would add, you know, this year, um, this concept of islands has been really hitting me hard. Um, again, being, being a solo rabbi in a small town, um, and just trying to figure out how do we go digitally? How do we bring people in? How, how am I supposed to do this all by myself? Um, and going, I'm, I might be an island, right? Thank you, Simon and Garfunkel. Um, but maybe we can actually be an archipelago. So this idea of islands of knowledge, we can actually string them together. It's not just that we have found an island. It's that we, I mean, maybe we have, and that does happen occasionally. But I think at this time, we're finding archipelagos and how they're all connected. And that gives us even more faith. And I use that term very delicately. Mm -hmm. um, 
because it gives us really just a grounding, a foundation, more certainty. And the more certainty we have overall, the more able something is able to shake on one side and not destroy the foundation. Mm-hmm. And I think, again, I think that's very true when we're looking at in all worlds, whether that's relationships or this category of science or this category of religion and specifically Jewish religion. I mean, we can see, um, I've been thinking a lot about recently um, early reform Judaism. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 200 years ago, 150 years ago, something like that, uh, depending when you decide when it started. Um, But about 150 years ago, we threw the baby out with the bathwater. We're like, ah, rituals, who needs them? Kashrut is for people that were, you know, not smart about how they ate. Uh, coming from people who didn't use refrigeration, um, right? We don't, we don't need those things. And now we're going, oh boy, boy, do we ever need those things? And how great it is! And we, we did a a full pivot. We said, yes, let's bring that in. And now, in some of these liberal streams of Judaism, we're saying, okay, uh, perhaps with kashrut, with kosherness, maybe it's being eco kosher. Maybe it's about being how we tend to the planet as a whole, not just ourselves, and really seeing ourselves part of the ecosystem as opposed to outside of Mm -hmm. it, Um, and really creating that foundation because ritual is so important. And I, I think ritual is one of the things that we have been lacking this year. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean ritual just in a synagogue, but ritual of talking to somebody at the water cooler, talking to somebody, the, the meeting in the parking lot after the meeting, mm-hmm. the um, corporations that might have had monthly birthday celebrations, right? Everyone's got a birthday. Let's have cake in the break room every month. And we don't have those rituals. And we have a uh, individual and societal grief over the lack of those rituals. And that's what we're trying to to bring together again. And I think ritual helps mark time. And one thing that's happened Absolutely. with COVID, it's, you know, like what day, week, month is it? You know, that's, I've totally lost track. And, and we've lost that ability to be able to, to, to say, oh, right, this is, this is what this time represents and what marks. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to let people know that if there are questions to be able to ask those in, in the chat, um, to be able to, to ask uh, Rachel and, and to be able to explore some of these questions. But one thing that I'd also love to have you talk about is the Down the Wormhole podcast, mm-hmm. which is incredibly fun. And, and if you haven't listened to it, it's Rachel and four other people. Um, Rachel, but you're the only, not only you're the, you're the only rabbi, you're the only Jew on the, on the podcast here. Um, and You've interviewed and talked to so many different people, ranging from paleontologists to um, to medical professionals to um, to biblical scholars. And one thing that's been interesting is is some people have I've heard from a lot of people that they feel like they learn so much from you from that unique perspective. Because I think a lot of people, when they're thinking about science and religion, they're thinking about it as that the Christianity versus science and evolution versus creationism and, and would love to hear either what, what some of your favorite things that you've been able to see or learn from, from the down the wormhole podcast and some of the experience of, of, 
of being a Jewish voice in this more pluralistic and, and, and often very Christian conversation, particularly surrounding religion and science. Well, that's a lot to unpack right there, Jeff. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> um, so uh, for those that don't know, Down the, Worm, Down the Wormhole podcast was created August of 2019. Um, we're into our 60 something episode. You know, I can't keep track because of when we record versus when we publish. So we're in our 60s. Um, and it is myself and four other former fellows um, from the Sinai and Synapses Fellowship. And we decided we don't want this to end. Let's keep these conversations going. So that's where it came from. But that's not where it is anymore. It's it's really any other conversations that we have that we can sort of say, okay, how how what are the intersections, not intersection, not one? How did these different topics combine? Um, and it was really important for me to be on it, um, to be perfectly honest, because I wanted to be the Jewish voice. I wanted to say, A, some of these are conversations that not just um, Christians are having, but the Jews and other religions are having too. So here's a perspective and B to show, well, just here's another perspective. Um, and I, I walk that line very carefully and by carefully, I mean, sometimes I completely fall on the other side of it and I, I failed to walk it very well of how much to put Judaism in these conversations and how much not to put Judaism in these conversations. And I think that's really important to um, to hold both truths, um, both in the sense of speaking too much and also not speaking enough. Um, but it's really important. And I do have to say, whenever we talk about Judaism, that's a broad brush in which every bristle is different. Mm -hmm. And so I really tried to be very careful when we do talk on the podcast, you know, these are things that are said. And we have this, this joke, which is almost rooted in Talmud, that two Jews, three opinions. Um, to recognize that I don't speak for all Jews. I don't speak for all rabbis. I speak for my understanding of my foundational culture, my foundational family, which also happens to be a faith and a religion and all this other stuff. But you're going to meet another Jew who might completely contradict and say the opposite of what I'm going to say. And that is part of our culture. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think it's really important to hear, hear my voice because of that. Um, yeah, I don't know if that helped answer. And, and I think that's, that's one of the, one of the interesting pieces of, of, of not saying God said, God said, it, God said it, I believe it, that ends it. And, and being able to say that these are, there are actually multiple different ways to be able to think about and talk about these kinds of conversations here. Yeah, exactly. And and I just love our rich Jewish tradition that it's not just there's that we're not just adding the Jewish voice, but we can add the Jewish voice for 3000 years. Mm -hmm. We can say, "Oh, actually this is this was written down 2500 years ago and this is what it said and here we have from 20 years ago a completely different statement and both are part of our truth." Mm -hmm. Both are part of who we are. And that demonstration of holding opposing and just not even opposing, they don't have to be in opposition to anything, just different views. Um, I think showcasing that is also really very important. 
as as part of our as part of our tradition, which is and not think, the same in every case. Right, right. But I think that's it's, it's also important to be able to have that that voice when we're thinking about things like space or medical ethics, or even, you know, you guys do stuff on pop culture also of being able to, um, being able to say this is, you know, it's it, when people say religion too often, they're thinking about what Christianity and often a very specific brand of Christianity and being able to say, this is a religion and science discussion. That's, that's multi-faith. It's multi-vocal. Each of the, each of the five hosts have their own perspective and stories and, 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 and different elements here, but here, how can we, ensure that there's a more diverse group of voices than what would happen otherwise. Yeah, exactly. And I think just by representation Mm -hmm. um, shows that in pretty much all conversations we have over any of these topics, there are a multitude of voices that there are. um, So even if you're having um, a conversation over X, Y, and Z topic, if you'd listen to down the wormhole, you go, oh, well, maybe Judaism has something else to say, or maybe Islam has something different to say, or maybe these um, native tribes and native religions have something else to say. It can just maybe jog jog us to remind ourselves that when we say religion or a topic it's not monolithic by mm-hmm. any stretch of the imagination. And it reminds ourselves to be even more open, even if we haven't talked about X, Y, or Z topic, which is really important. And almost going back to the, the analytic chemist perspective of being able to, to be able to say in Judaism, you're wrong on something. That's, you know, that, that's a very valuable thing. And, and you know, the rabbis are filled with conversations of one rabbi says this and another rabbi says no. And how do they have that argument? How do they have that machloket to be able to say, here's what the argumentation is without it leading to excommunication, which does happen a couple of times, but that's. Um... <laughs> right. But you know, it goes all the way. And I didn't intend for this to sort of be the theme of our conversation today, but it goes back to relationships Right, so I'm thinking of one of the most famous combinations of rabbis, Hillel and Shammai. Right, like when we talk about the rabbis of old and the chavruta, right, the pairs of them, Hillel and Shammai, like they are way at the top of the most famous pair. And we look at this, and today we pretty much follow Hillel, like 300, three, 300 conversations of Hillel. We follow in only Shammai, a couple of them, and. The question of, well, how did they get along so well? And how did they demonstrate that they were really saying, no, it's this way, and here's why I think that? Because at the end of the day, the house of Hillel would marry people from the house of Shammai, and the people from the house of Shammai would marry the people of of Beitel, of the house of Hillel, that they would say, this, I am very strong about this but it is not the only thing that is important in my life. You and our relationship is, is more important. And so let's go ahead and marry off one another so that we may continue having these conversations. Um, so I think that that piece is also very crucial when we have this conversation of it's not just you're wrong and here's why. It's you're wrong, here's why, and that's okay. Right. How do we, how do we, create a sense where even if we disagree, we're still acting in a way where we're part of a larger community. And I think that's something that's that's become 
even more challenging and I think even more important these days. Yes. And, and I will, I do want to add one piece. I would be sort of dishonest to myself if I didn't. I think there's a very big difference in having disagreements, very strong, very powerful, very almost um, ideologically driven disagreements about how to do something, which is very different than a disagreement on valuing someone's life experience and mm. valuing someone's life. We can disagree you know, till the cows come home on which way we should light the candles for Hanukkah, or should we light a fire? Can we use a hot plate? Can happily have those conversations, love them, right? Uh, 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 An argument for the sake of heaven is what we're looking for. But if you argue my right to exist, I can't argue with that. Mm -hmm. And so I think, I think that's where we're also really struggling is getting back to the point of saying, I'm arguing procedure. I'm arguing a how to, I'm not arguing a right to exist and we cannot accept that. Um, And I want to make sure that we don't get into this area of, well, we'll just accept those differences. We'll accept for, for the sake of Shalom Bayit, for the sake of just general peace in the home, peace in the country. I will accept Mm-hmm. That you have a disagreement that I exist, and that I think we have to be very wary of. Well, that as you were saying too, of, of of you know how to make sure that you're not just arguing with a with a brick wall. And there's there's both a reciprocity, but it's also it's on each of us to to be taking the the steps that we choose to take, and that's and and consciously deciding that. Um, and so I'm I'm thrilled that we got to have this conversation here this afternoon. Thank you for taking time and, and modeling what these kinds of conversations can look like and giving some very practical tools on everything from parenting to interfaith conversations to um to questions of of chemistry and Torah. And um so we're we're so glad that you were able to join us. And I highly, highly recommend people to listen to the Down the Wormhole podcast. It is absolutely a blast to listen to. So, um, so Rachel, thank you for taking some time here this afternoon. It has, uh, being with you, being with our listeners, our viewers, um, having this conversation, um, really is one of those, those parts that just warms my heart and just makes me excited. Like it makes, I'm a very visual, like I'm a talker. Um, I, I'm excited. It makes me enjoy and give hope and have hope. Um, So thank you for that. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Sacred Science and the opportunities we can discover when we open up our worldview and enter into conversation with people we might not otherwise engage with. You can follow Rabbi Jackson and particularly her podcast, Down the Wormhole, on Twitter at Down Wormhole. Our guest next time will be Rabbi Rachel Gurevitz, Rabbi of Congregation B'nai Shalom in Westboro, Massachusetts, which was part of Sinai and Synapse's project, Scientists in Synagogues. I've been your host, Rabbi Jeff Middleman. Sacred Science is a production of Sinai and Synapses and is part of the network of shows hosted at Jewish Live. And you can join us every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern at jewishlive.org slash sacredscience to be part of the conversation. Sacred Science is produced by Jeff Middleman and edited by Rachel Pincus. And to find all of our previous episodes and guests, you can find us at sinaiandsynapses.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, if you're interested in more conversations about religion and science, including articles, blog posts, and upcoming events, 
You can follow us on Twitter at Sinai Synapses or me at Rabbi Middleman. Thank you for joining us and Kol Tuv, all good things. <laughs>